Welcome everybody to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. Since the beginning of this year, immigration has become a burning public policy issue in Washington. For the first time in decades, the United States is considering a major reform in the way that it deals with immigrants. The ensuing debate and the possibility of reform are welcome, but the fact is politicians are arriving very late uh, to this issue. And that's because in this country, there has long been a wide gap between restrictive laws and the reality of immigration. It is a gap that reflects the economic and social fact that there are millions of Americans and millions of immigrants from Mexico, Central America, and elsewhere who wish to work uh, together in this country and engage in peaceful, voluntary exchange, but are not legally allowed to do so. And that inconsistency has produced uh, a lot of the problems associated with illegal immigration, many serious problems, and some imagined. Uh, the prospects of reform have also stimulated a debate about the economic and uh, cultural issues uh, surrounding immigration, its, its impact, and it's a debate that cuts across uh, party lines and it's one that has generated a lot of passion. How would a possible legalization of millions of unauthorized uh, immigrants and the creation of, of a guest worker program affect wages and jobs? What does the evidence say about the extent to which immigrants are assimilating into uh, American culture in recent decades? Are immigrants a net drain or are they net contributors to the welfare state and do they mainly come here to work or to get state benefits? For that matter, the political impact uh, um, of immigration is something that has been debated. What should we expect from in increased legal immigration in that regard versus the status quo? These are legitimate questions that go uh, to the heart of one's world views on such issues as inequality and fairness, the proper role of the state in regulating business and labor, cultural or national identity issues, and fiscal policy, just to name a few issues. So it's no wonder that this sudden interest on the part of leading uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, to address this issue has, has caused heated exchanges, exaggerated claims, and some amount of, of nastiness. That's why I'm pleased uh, today to be able to host a, f a forum uh, for a book that takes a balanced uh, look at a wide range of issues that are being discussed today. Uh, the book, Global Crossings, Immigration, Civilization, and America by Alvaro Vargas Llosa comes at a perfect moment and uh, uh, it puts immigration in historical context, showing uh, how so much of the debate uh, today is not actually new in American politics and that we can be guided by a lot of uh, American experience, a long American uh, experience. But better to let the author talk to us about that. My good friend Alvaro Vargas Llosa is, the senior is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Prosperity at the Independent Institute who, publishes, who has published this book. He has been a nationally syndicated columnist for Wa the Washington Post Writers Group. He has been uh, the author of numerous books, including The Che Guevara Myth, Liberty for Latin America, and The Guide to the Perfect Latin American Idiot, which, of, which was a bestseller in, in its Spanish edition 
in Latin America. He is ubiquitous uh, in his columns that appear throughout Latin America uh, 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 every week and uh, has contributed to the leading uh, newspapers in the United States. He has been a board member of the Miami Herald Publishing Company and an op-ed op page editor and columnist for the Miami Herald. I could go on and on, uh, but I would say one more thing. He has also been uh, one of the great champions of liberty in Latin America, uh, very present in all of the most important debates uh, on the right side of the issues, I, I believe. And with this book, I could say, uh, in the Americas. Please help me welcome Alvaro Vargas Llosa. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ian, for that uh, wonderful and generous uh, presentation. And, and thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting this, uh, this meeting and to Alex for being so uh, kind in helping put it together. Um, so I've been asked, why, why did I write this book? Why was I interested in this topic? Um, and uh, well, there are several reasons. Perhaps one of them has to do with my, uh, I guess, identity problem. Um, I've been called a Spaniard in Peru. I've been called a Sudaca in Spain, which is a pejorative term for South American. I've been called a Pakistani in London, where I was based for a while. And now I'm called a Hispanic, which in Spanish means Iberian, in other words, Spaniard. Um, so I, I don't really know where I belong and who I am, but um, I guess uh, it's probably a, a good enough reason to explore this uh, important uh, issue today. Um, so let me um, tell you a little bit about what I do in this, in this book. I, what I do is I, I um, take on all the different uh, myths that I have seen um, over the years. Uh, that are really driving this, uh, this discussion and this debate, uh, including the current discussion in the Senate and, and soon in, in the House as well, um, about immigration uh, reform. Uh, I won't cover all of them, but I will share with you a few and give you my uh, perspective on, on them. And I, uh, uh, I hope that this will help uh, at least clarify some of the uh, misinformation that's uh, out there that's really quite uh, striking. Um, one first myth, um, and I've, all of what I'm going to say, I've heard many people say, people of uh, all sorts of backgrounds uh, and all sorts of places. Um, I, I didn't make any of this up. But one line of argument basically says, we're getting the wrong kinds of immigrants today. We used to get the right kind of immigrants. I am not anti-immigration. I'm just against this current type of immigrant that we're getting uh, today. Uh, and the answer to that is the, the United States uh, always got the wrong kind of immigrants. Um, <laughs> that's always been the case. I mean, um, the variety uh, of, of uh, immigrant sources and types of immigration that this country has uh, received in, in the last uh, two centuries, two and a half centuries, is simply astounding. I mean, of course, between 1830 and 1880, it was, yes, it was mostly Northern Europeans, but between 1880 and 1920, it was all about Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans and Central Europeans who had nothing to do with Northern Europeans. They looked different, they had different cultures. Uh, they were the Mexicans of yesteryear. 
Um, and uh, of course, after that, uh, you had, and even before that, you had uh, people from Asia. You had the Chinese during the gold rush. You had the Japanese at the end of the 19th century and early 20th centuries. Um, and then, yes, you had uh, Hispanics uh, a bit further on, and you had Indians after uh, 1965 because of a change in the law that uh, triggered a sort of unintended consequence. Um, so there's always been the wrong kind of immigrant in the United States. It's, it's simply not, uh, not true. Another important myth um, says that the U.S. is getting a disproportionate number of immigrants. We are this morning, just this morning on a radio show, I heard the host say this, uh, we're getting more than any other country in the world. They're all wanting to come here. They don't want to go to other countries. Uh, again, this is, this is very silly. Um, about 3% of the uh, world population is made up of first-generation immigrants. Um, uh, and illegal immigrants constitute about one-sixth of the immigrants that uh, uh, travel from one place to another every, every year. So a total number of, uh, the total number of immigrants every year is about 215. The total number of illegal immigrants about 30, uh, 30 million. Um, the U.S. gets, in terms of just illegal immigrants, one-sixth of 1% 1 of its uh, population. So clearly a much uh, smaller proportion than many other countries are, uh, are getting. Uh, so again, it's not true that the U.S. Is, is, is getting a disproportionate number of immigrants. This is a worldwide phenomenon, and other countries are, relatively speaking, getting even more immigrants than the United States, uh, illegal immigrants than the United States, undocumented immigrants than the United States. Another myth says that the only motive behind immigration um, is uh, poverty. Why should we in the United States solve world poverty? I mean, we've got enough uh, poor of our own as it is. Let us take care of our own. Let's not solve world poverty. And that's not true. That's not the only motive behind migration. In fact, the poorest of the poor almost never migrate from one country to the other. They migrate within the borders of their own countries. Um, Europe, let's take Europe. Until the 1980s, the early 1980s, um, uh, Europe was a source of migration, uh, of, of out-migration, I mean, people leaving Europe. Uh, and that was a wealthy and prosperous continent before they got into this mess, uh, which is a different uh, story. Germany, the richest among the rich in Europe, uh, was exporting about half a million people every year until the 1980s. So clearly, the, the motivation behind that was not poverty. Uh, South Korea is a source of a uh, significant number of immigrants uh, or emigrants who come to the United States. Uh, and that's a rich country. Bangladeshi women who are very poor, the poorest among the poor, migrate very little, even in Asia, which is the continent that has uh, the greatest number of migrants every, uh, every year. So I could go on and on and on. What are the motives? I mean, they vary. Yes, of course, uh, economic conditions are part of the story. But you have everything, including uh, distressed conditions at home, politically, institutionally, I mean, not necessarily economically, family ties, occupational preference, adventure, I mean, all sorts of uh, different reasons for uh, uh, migrating. And uh, historical ties have a lot to do with it as well. The US has historically been entangled uh, around the world uh, in conflicts and all sorts of uh, exchanges, uh, sometimes friendly, sometimes not so friendly. And that has created conditions for permanent migration. Uh, there's been a significant Filipino 
migration to the United States, as we all know, of course, and that has to do with involvement in the uh, war at the end of the 19th century and also with uh, the encouragement that the United States gave to Filipinos to come to the United States historically, including a, a special program set up after the Second World War for Filipino nurses. Uh, all those were signals that the U.S. sent to Filipinos say, saying it's okay to come. We have historical ties. We recognize we're uh, bound together, so come to the United States. Uh, Mexican migration, the origin of Mexican migration to the United States is not poor Mexicans wanting a better life uh, in, in the United States. It was U.S. business interest needing to replace Eastern Europeans, uh, first, first Japanese workers and then Eastern European workers in the early 20th century. So they went to Mexico and, and asked for Mexican workers, and Mexican workers started coming uh, to the United States to work, uh, particularly in a railroad uh, construction. Um, so all these historical ties have a lot to do with it as well. Another uh, important myth is the fact that there's never been any hostility to immigration in the United States. Um, we've always been a, a country of immigrants. We've always welcomed immigrants. Um, we have always valued uh, people coming from overseas uh, to contribute to, to this society. And again, that's not true. There's always been hostility towards immigration. Of course, it hasn't always taken place um, exactly in the same way. It's not always been as intense. But historically, it's um, always been the case that there was significant uh, hostility uh, to uh, immigrants. Um, if you look at what happened in the gold rush, uh, the Chinese uh, were the object of uh, vilification at, at the time. They were you know, frowned upon by all those who were taking, native-born Americans who were taking part in the gold rush. Uh, the Japanese at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century were the object of uh, tremendous, tremendous uh, legal restrictions. They weren't allowed to even own a property, so they had to find all sorts of ways to get around the law um, for, for, uh, for this. Uh, in the middle of the 19th century, um, the, the whole nativist movement was really born. Uh, there was the famous Know Nothing Party. Uh, they uh, uh, were very much hostile uh, towards uh, immigration, and they had an impact on uh, the, the, the government and generally on the outlook of society towards uh, uh, immigration. So it's uh, always been the case, and that's why we have seen uh, throughout the 20th century and, and into the 21st century a, uh, an evolving situation from the point of view of how the law addressed immigration, and it's always been, uh, a, 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 I guess, a, a, an evolution towards more uh, or, or a change towards more and more uh, restriction that reflected the mindset, a mindset that was uh, relatively hostile. Not everybody, of course, partook in this. Not everybody was uh, uh, reflected in uh, these uh, attitudes. There's always been, of course, a, a pro-immigration current of opinion in the United States. But what I'm trying to get at, this is, this is not something necessarily uh, new or, or very uh, uh, different. One thing that I think we need to understand, and this is also part of the, of, of, of the myth, is that whenever there is a big disconnect between the law and reality, you're going to get a black market. Uh, it happens with goods, it happens with services, it happens with things, but it also happens with, with people. Um, you constantly hear this argument, and of course I can see where they're coming from and I can 
sympathize with the sentiment behind it uh, that we cannot, as a country that is governed by the rule of law, accept people who violate the law. I mean, we're, we're just not that type of country. This is not something that's morally or legally acceptable. And yes, I mean, on paper, of course, that's an extremely powerful argument. Who can argue with that? However, the problem is when the law is simply not realistic, when the law does not take uh, reality into account, then you create a conditions for a systematic violation of the law on a grand scale. And when that happens, usually something is wrong with the law, not necessarily with the nature of the people who are violating that law. Uh, it's, it's simply the way it works. It works with all sorts of um, uh, other uh, co conducts, social conducts, that stem from, uh, of course, um, the criminalization of things that should not be um, held as being criminal by the law. So the same, same thing happens with uh, immigrants, which is why when people say, well, there's a disproportionate number of criminals who are immigrants, of course, if you criminalize immigrants and you just make the, con the condition of being an immigrant a criminal one, then clearly you're going to have a lot of criminals in, 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 in the country. But if you adjust for age, there are no more criminals uh, uh, who are immigrant than uh, who are native-born. It's about the same uh, rate. Uh, there are all sorts of, of, of studies. Um, but yes, you've had a you know, significant number of people in jail, uh, sometimes on the way to deportation, uh, particularly in the last few years, who could have been, I guess, con you know, considered criminal simply because it was criminal to be uh, uh, an immigrant. Um, so uh, it's, it's important to get this myth out of the way if we're going to uh, find a legal way to deal with what is a social problem. Clearly having almost 12 million people operating in the shadows outside of the law is a social problem. Uh, we just need to make sure that that uh, is not addressed um, uh, you know, start from a starting point of uh, believing these people are somehow uh, you know, biologically criminal. Uh, th th these people are simply the result of a disconnect between the law and uh, reality. Another important myth is, has to do with culture. I've heard this time and time again. I'm sure many of you have heard this. Uh, these people are culturally different. Uh, unlike those previous waves of immigrants who were culturally uh, in tune with our values, uh, these people are different. Um, and yet, if you look at this um, in so many different ways, you find exactly the same uh, pattern. Uh, immigrants today are culturally uh, in tune with U.S.-born people, with U.S. society, almost any way you look at it. If you look at religion, for instance, in the last 20 years, uh, let's talk about Hispanics for a moment. They're, of course, the most numerous uh, immigrants in, 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 in that period of time. 70% of them uh, are Catholic. About 23% are Protestant. Of the ones who call themselves Catholic, one-fifth of them call themselves born again, which is, by the way, something that you never hear in Latin America. Latin American Catholics never describe themselves as born again. Uh, so what, what I'm sensing is that people want to fit in so much uh, that they're describing, describing themselves as Protestants do in the United States. So this is clearly an effort to tell the United States, we are like you. Uh, we believe uh, just like you. We praise and pray just like you. Uh, we, we are like you culturally. Um, 
If you look at uh, family values, uh, which is something I, I don't think conservatives who are critical of immigration clearly understand, um, you will find that there's probably um, more inclination towards family values today among immigrants than <laughs> among any other uh, part of society. Um, uh, for instance, um, half of all illegal households are made up of couples with children. And only 13% of illegal households are headed by uh, a single parent against one third in the case of uh, native born Americans. Uh, so again, if we stand for family values, if we really mean it when we say we want a society based on family values, then that's, surely there's a source of uh, great comfort and support for your ideas and views among immigrants. They're not um, inimical to um, family values. They, they are all about uh, family values. So then if you convince them of this, which is a tough, uh, a tough thing to do, then they say, oh, but they're having too many children. Uh, it's not fashionable anymore. I don't know how you make that argument compatible with the argument that the welfare state is uh, going to be a problem with more immigration. But then you prove to them that that's no longer the case. Um, the birth rate is going down and down and down among immigrants, just as it's going down and down and down across Latin America. Uh, it's still a little bit higher among um, Hispanic uh, uh, women in the United States, but only 60%, so almost just half a child more uh, than, than native-born women, and the train is going down. I mean, I can foresee easily a time when it'll be pretty much the same rate. And in Latin America, there's this new discussion. I mean, until a few years ago, of course, there was a high birth rate. Today, it's, it's going down, uh, I mean, in an incredible way. And so those societies are beginning to face some of the issues that developed countries have been facing in terms of uh, the, the, uh, the rate of, of course, contributors to the tr system of transfer um, to uh, beneficiaries from that, that system. So they're facing the same, uh, same uh, issues. So no matter how you look at it, um, they are culturally uh, uh, compatible. If you look at all those neighborhoods uh, that they have helped uh, regenerate, uh, I mention a few in the book in, in, in South Florida, in, in, uh, in, in New York, you know, the process called gentrification. Um, communities that, that were, uh, I mean, a complete disaster, and they, they've become uh, very nice communities thanks to the effort that uh, Hispanics in, in general, but also, I mean, Hispanics particularly, but in general, immigrants have put into, uh, into this. Uh, again, th that's a cultural sign um, of com perfect compatibility with the host, uh, the host nation. I will grant you this, though. Um, it is true that, that multiculturalism has um, distorted things a bit. And I think we would uh, not be fair if we didn't recognize that. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, there was something that uh, used to be called Americanization. Uh, Friedrich Hayek, for instance, one of our heroes, of course, um, praised Americanization very much. He, he attributed uh, to Americanization the virtue of having inculcated uh, values and ideas relating to the free society. And uh, yes, I think there was something uh, to be said for Americanization. There were some as aspects that were kind of chauvinistic and there were, uh, I guess, uh, uh, abuses that were sometimes committed. But by and large, I think it was a healthy thing. It was, not, it was not so much government policy. It was just a general 
cultural attitude across society that somehow created incentives for people who came into learning English quickly to, to become familiar with the values of U.S. society, with freedom, um, and, and all these things. And, and uh, that was a positive thing. That began to change um, in the 1960s, of course, when this whole new paradigm uh, of what we call multiculturalism today emerged. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because there's a whole chapter about this in the book. It's a, it's a fascinating discussion, but it's, uh, I don't want to be sidetracked. But just quickly, I would say that uh, well, essentially what happened was in the era of decolonization after the Second World War, um, we began to look at, 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 at values in a different way um, through relativism. We began to um, see values as, as uh, exchangeable. We, we, you know, all values were equal. All ways of looking at society and institutions were pretty much uh, equal. Uh, that gave rise, of course, to a whole new way of uh, analyzing and studying uh, societies uh, from the past. Um, and then from then, we went on to um, think of minorities as, as these collectivist entities that were um, somehow... Uh, in need of special protection, uh, special rights uh, to correct an imbalance that was uh, historical in, in, in nature, that was the legacy of past uh, uh, abuses. And this in turn translated, in, of course, into all sorts of, uh, I guess, social engineering based on ethnicity. And we saw things like you know, gerrymandering on ethnic, uh, along ethnic, ethnic lines, you know, equal employment opportunity and positive discrimination, all sorts of things that um, gradually, I think, went beyond what was really uh, compatible with a, a truly free society governed by the principle of equality before the law. That was bound to generate a backlash at some point, and of course it did. But my argument is this. The people who are to blame for multiculturalism are not immigrants. They are US academics, mostly. And it was mostly something that emerged out of uh, academia, not just in the United States, to be fair, also in, uh, in Europe. So yes, I mean, there's been a distortion there. And yes, there are things I myself, as, as an immigrant here, uh, do not feel at all comfortable with. But if we're going to fight multiculturalism, the way to do it is not to fight immigration. It's, it's to fight the ideology behind uh, multiculturalism. So from then, I go to, and this is one way to prove that it's not immigrants who are to blame for this, to the issue of assimilation, which again is laden with, with, with myth. I'm constantly told they don't assimilate anymore. I drove past so, such community and such other community in California. They were all speaking Spanish and reading Spanish newspapers. So that it didn't used to be that way. Of course, it always was that way. German communities in the Midwest, what did they do? They printed German papers. They spoke German among themselves. That's what Italians did, first-generation Italians. That's what Asians did as well. That sometimes they do that still in, in, in California. It's human nature. People want to feel they belong to something. They want to protect themselves for a little while. But that doesn't stop or interrupt the process of assimilation. The process is still what it used to be. It's a three-generation process. The first generation makes some progress. The second generation is bilingual, but they speak. English better than whatever other language we're talking about. By the third generation, they don't even speak the, the mother tongue, so to speak, anymore at all. Uh, and I've seen this among Hispanics, and it's, it's really a fascinating process. And that was, it was always the case. That's exactly the way it worked with uh, Italians and, and, and the Poles and the, the Germans. And it's always been that kind of uh, dynamic. 
Again, just as in the past, the second generation does better financially than the first generation, and by the third generation, assimilation again is uh, complete. Uh, if you look at marriage, marriage beyond the community, which is one way to look at this, um, we see the same pattern today as we saw in, in the past. Um, I compared second-generation Italians in the early part of the 20th century with second-generation Hispanics and particularly Mexicans today. The rate of outmarriage uh, among second-generation Italians was 17%. Today, it's a little higher than that among Hispanics and Mexicans, almost 20%. Uh, by the third generation, uh, outmarriage is very strong indeed. Um, so again, uh, very, very similar patterns of, of, assimilating, uh, of assimilation. Of course, since you have a, a kind of constant or permanent inflow of first-generation Hispanics, it's only natural that you're going to see uh, you know, some pockets of, uh, I guess, Spanish-speaking communities uh, almost on a constant basis. But that's not because they're not assimilating. It's simply because the inflow keeps uh, occurring. Um, so there's nothing to fear. They are assimilating. Uh, and I think that is something that we, we need to um, uh, embrace. So let's, let's go into, uh, I don't know if I have a bit more time, but the economy. That's, again, another uh, important source of, 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 of myth. Um, I'm always hearing this. People, I mean, we, we would like to have high-skilled immigrants, but these low-skilled immigrants, I mean, why do we need these low-skilled immigrants? Well, because the modern economy needs low-skilled immigrants. Um, since the Second World War, we, we've had all these imbalances that needed to be corrected among developed countries and unde undeveloped countries that needed to be corrected through... Uh, basically migration. That's why the Germans uh, signed treaties with the Turks. They needed Turkish uh, workers, the Spaniards with the Moroccans, the French with the Algerians, and yes, the United States took in Mexicans. It's the way it, it works. Even in a high-tech economy, you need uh, you know, certain repetitious, mechanical uh, jobs that are going to be part of it, and, and, and somebody is going to have to fill those, uh, take up those, those jobs, and that's something that migration uh, helps to, to do. Uh, do they uh, hurt the, the economy? They do exactly the opposite. Um, immigrants help enlarge the pie. They, they help make the pie bigger. I, I went to the, um, one of the most prominent academic critics of immigration, George Borges, and even he recognizes that illegal immigrants contribute about $22 billion to the economy every year. So we updated uh, that, uh, that data. I think, I mean, it's a very conservative statistic. I think it's way more than that, but let's accept that for a moment. We just updated his, uh, his uh, calculation, and that would, uh, that would translate into about $36 billion today. Uh, and if you make that legal, it probably it will be increased by you know, two and a half times, three times. We're talking about almost $100 billion a year over a decade, about a trillion dollars. That's the contribution to the economy uh, by, uh, by immigrants. Um, how does the process work? Well, they are producers. They are consumers. Um, when they come in uh, at the low end of the scale, they help others move up the scale. Uh, yes, they have a very tiny temporary effect on wages at the lower end. Our calculation is about 1.5%. Others, it, it varies a little bit, but it's, it's a very, very, very small uh, impact. But that's offset by people who are moving up the scale and earning higher wages, and also offset, of course, by the fact that immigrants help uh, th these labor-intensive uh, industries be more productive and they help keep prices down. So as consumers, everybody in society is benefiting for, from that. So the effect is 
of course, uh, a very potent one, uh, positively potent. Uh, not to speak of high-skilled uh, immigration. I don't have much time, but again, I mean, high-skilled immigration, how can that not be a you know, huge contribution to the economy? Uh, One-third of doctorates in engineering, uh, technology, sciences, uh, involve immigrants. Uh, One-fourth of Nobel Prize winners throughout the 20th century in the US uh, have been uh, immigrants. Um, immigrants um, made uh, Silicon Valley, uh, the Silicon Valley miracle. Uh, between 95 and 2005, immigrants uh, founded uh, many companies. They created half a million jobs. So it was always absurd that the, you know, the, uh, the rules, the prevailing rules, I hope they're going to change now, but uh, would, were such that the quota for H-1B visas, high-skilled visas, would be exhausted on day one. As soon as you know, they were open for applications, they would be taken up because uh, I think the ceiling at the time was 65,000 just until a few years ago uh, because clearly there was a greater demand. So that was economic suicide on the part of the United States. Uh, let me finish um, by touching very, very quickly on the issue of, of cost versus benefit. Uh, that's another huge myth, the idea that they cost, immigrants cost a lot more uh, than they uh, contribute, uh, fiscally, I, I, I mean. Um, uh, that is simply not true. There are so many studies. There's one great study that was conducted a, a couple of decades ago by the National Research Council. Uh, they calculated uh, not only the, the fiscal impact of legalizing immigrants now, they calculated what would happen for the next 50 years, because, of course, as you know, they're young, so we can, we can expect that they will be working for the next 50 years uh, in legal conditions. And then they calculated the net present value of uh, those 50 years in terms of what they will put into the system and take out of the system. And they came up with, and that included, of course, um, children who are in school today, in public school, but will come out and work for the next 50 years. So you have to bring all of that into the equation. And their calculation was a net cost, just a one-off cost, present-day value of $5,000, which is nothing. If you weigh that against the contribution I just talked about to the to the economy. Other studies go even beyond that, and they say even the net contribution without taking into account uh, the contribution to the economy, just the fiscal impact, uh, is going to be positive in terms of more generating more revenue for the government than, 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 than taking out. And Alex has written about this, I think, very, very forcefully. So my message is basically this. Um, we are in an age of globalization. We have won the intellectual case for free trade. There's, we can't say at this point that we have you know, free trade, ideal free trade conditions across the world, but we've won the intellectual case for free trade. Nobody speaks against free trade on, intellectual, uh, on an intellectual level. Nobody says, I'm against free trade. They say, I am for free trade, but... Um, and then they talk about the level playing field and all of that. But they, I mean, intellectually, we've won the case for free trade. We have not. We're far from winning the case for... Uh, free uh, uh, immigration, and I think it's simply not um, uh, reasonable to expect that a world that's moving gradually towards free trade uh, can continue to contemplate immigration in the way it is. Uh, but uh, trade in goods uh, constitutes about the equivalent of 45% of world GDP. About 20% of world savings are invested outside of the country where they originate, and yet only 3% of the population is first-generation immigrant. This imbalance will have to be corrected. I mean, the dynamics are pushing the world in that direction. So you can either accept and embrace and channel that energy and force through legal channels, or you can try and put uh, barriers uh, against it, and you will be overwhelmed, either because the negative effect of actually 
being able and managing to control this uh, will be huge or because you will not be able to control them. And then by the time you accept them, you will realize you will have expend, spent a lot of money and uh, with all the side effects that come with it uh, in, in trying to stem the, the, the flow. Immigration is not a, a danger to the United States, to its values, to its economy, to its standing in the world. Uh, it is exactly the opposite. It is, I think, one of the best ways to keep the United States a free country, to keep it a prosperous country, and to keep it as a model uh, for the rest of the world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alvaro. Our next speaker is Alex Naurasta. He is an immigration policy analyst at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. Before working here, he worked at the Competitive Enterprise Institute on immigration issues. He has degrees in, in <coughs> economics and economic history from George Mason University and the London School of Economics. He has been an exemplary policy analyst at the Cato Institute and has been uh, quite involved and very influential in the current debate on immigration. Please help me welcome Alex. Well, uh, thank you, Ian, for that uh, very nice introduction. And uh, you know, thank you, Alvaro, for coming today and for talking about your fantastic book. And I want to say part of the reason why free trade is accepted intellectually by so many people around the world today, as opposed to 50 or 60 years ago, is because of the hard work of Alvaro and a lot of other classical liberals around the world uh, in the United States and Central and South America and everywhere around the world. And uh, that hard work, I think, has really paid off. We are able to do so much at the Cato Institute in part because uh, people like myself are able to stand on the shoulders of intellects of uh, Alvaro and, and others who have, have forcefully argued for this point for uh, generations. So thank you very much uh, for that. Now I want to go into some other details about uh, this fantastic book, uh, Global Crossing, some details that we weren't able to touch on in the limited amount of time that we have. But one of, the main, one of the issues that a lot of people raise when it comes to immigration is they think, well, national security. They think, you know, today is a different environment. We have global terrorism. We have al-Qaeda. We have issues like these. And because of this, we can't be as open to immigration as we were in the past because of all these issues. Well, just like the other points made in this book, that's no different from what it was 100 years ago. I mean, very few people remember that there was an intense terrorist campaign in the United States in the early 20th century, uh, uh, carried out mainly by an Italian anarchists and communists, who uh, at different points blew up dozens and up to about 100 bombs across the United States, uh, targeting people like the uh, Attorney General of the United States, A. Mitchell Palmer, uh, and numerous other public officials across the country at the time. Uh, and people had a, a reaction at that point. They said, we can't have this type of thing. This is a new experience, this international age of terrorism. This was at a time when communists were marching across the world and having success in Europe, in Eastern Europe, in the chaos in the Soviet Union. And these were people were seen as a, an extension of that. And we need to close our borders to try to block this out. Well, that's really no different than what we hear today about uh, Islamic terrorism and about um, other issues like that when we take a look at the Middle East. And, but, but what's even more astonishing is how a lot of our immigration policy makes it easier for national security threats to persist, make it easier for these uh, problems to grow, and in a lot of cases, uh, 
increase the ability of um, these national security threats of these opponents of liberty across the world to uh, more exploit uh, their advantages by taking advantage of American immigration law. Uh, one modern example of this is in 2010, there were uh, about a dozen Somalis arrested in Mexico. Uh, there was rumors that they were a member of the Al-Shabaab militia, which was an, an Islamist uh, terrorist militia based in Somalia, and they were arrested in Mexico, and the Mexican authorities, uh, in their infinite competence, uh, released them uh, early without any kind of uh, records. And there was a big, um, for lack of a better word, freak out in the American media about this. They thought, these guys are definitely coming here. They're definitely coming to the United States. They're going to wreak havoc. And um, you know, as a result, Border Patrol was beefed up, and these people were eventually apprehended, uh, or they just faded away and nothing happened. But the point is that because American immigration enforcement, because our immigration laws are so focused on keeping people out for economic reasons or for any other types of reasons, a small amount of what they're able to do is to focus on legitimate threats like these. Instead, they're more concerned with asking, what, how will an additional worker affect the wages for American tomato pickers? They're more concerned with how an additional worker will affect the uh, labor market conditions for computer programmers in, um, in Silicon Valley. They're more concerned with where a high-skilled immigrant will take a conference call, whether it's at his home, and whether that home is listed in the forums as a place of residence uh, or as a place of work than they are about these legitimate threats that are out there. So if we're really concerned about this, if we think that we live in an age that is so dangerous internationally that immigration needs to be restricted and regulated, okay, if you believe that is true, then you should force for a refocusing, you should argue for a total refocusing of immigration away from keeping out willing workers and separating them from willing employers and focus entirely on the small but real national security threats that exist. Now, throughout history, you know, these threats have also been used uh, to our disadvantage national security. Think about the numerous hoops and hurdles American immigration enforcement put in the 1930s and early 1940s on scientists trying to flee Europe and come to the United States to work that eventually were employed to work in uh, the Manhattan Project and other government research projects to help win the war. Um, there was enormous bureaucratic uh, fear to keep these people out because of national security problems. A lot of these people had ties to communists or alleged ties to communists, and they were kept out because of a fear of national security reasons for that. One of my favorite examples is there was a Chinese rocket scientist named Xi'an Shusen. He died in 2009. Now, he was involved with rocket research in the United States in the 50s. Now, because of a national security law that said that communists could not be employed or immigrate to the United States, he was investigated by the FBI, and they said there was enough circumstantial evidence that he had attended a communist rally 20 years before that he was kicked out of the United States and deported to communist China, where he was the founder of their international rocket and missile program. The entire rocket program in China was based off the engineering expertise that this immigrant to the United States, who wanted to stay here and live and work, was forced back uh, to China as a result of that. Now, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a libertarian. I don't believe that China pros is an existential threat to the United States or anything like that. But if you're worried about this, about national security, issues coming from other countries like this, the last thing you want to do is to send talented foreigners who have come here to learn these issues back to these home countries. That's pretty much the last thing you want to do. Now, I think switching gears to culture and how really Americans have 
taken a look at immigrants and treated them pretty much the same throughout history and how they've come. We've always been skeptical of them, and we've always compared them negatively to previous ways of immigrants. There's a quote by Thomas Sowell in a recent article uh, of his written on June uh, 4th uh, titled Abstract Immigrants, where he writes, the immigrants of today are very different in many ways from those who arrived here a hundred years ago. Now, I think he massively exaggerates the wave of differences between the immigrants today and back then, and we heard about a lot of these differences. But what's also different are Americans today. And it's true, multiculturalism has you know, impacted American society to an extent, um, and I think that that's a bad ideology. But we're also, in a lot of ways, more welcoming. Americans today may say nasty things about immigrants today, but let's not forget that the largest mass lynching in American history was of the 18, in the 1890s in New Orleans of Italian immigrants by a mob of white Americans who thought that they had committed a crime and they had gotten away with it. That was the largest mass lynching in American history. In the 1830s, you had mobs of Protestant Americans going out and burning down churches, Catholic churches occupied by the Irish, burning down destroying convents, uh, raping the nuns inside, horrible things like this. Now, the rhetoric today about immigration from Americans who are opposed is nasty, and it is gross. But we don't have this level of you know, cultural aversion and violence to the extent that people are going out and doing this. Americans are behaving much better in the face, I think, of immigration than they, are, um, than they did back in the day. Um, and I think that, that comes across as well. But um, you know, these worries about immigrants being different are totally exaggerated. And the Catholic example is, is uh, a great one. Um, immigrants today are majority Catholic, just like they were 100 years ago. It's just that they come from different countries in the world and different parts of the world. And what's most remarkable about the pace of assimilation, especially for Mexican Americans and for the descendants of Mexican Americans, is that so many of them came illegally. They came to this country illegally, and they lived for years, oftentimes, in the black market. But the extent to which they and their children have assimilated truly, in a lot of ways, outpaces Italian immigrants who came legally 100 years ago, who was, were able to live entirely within, above board, in the legal market. What's truly remarkable, and I think if uh, immigration was allowed to the extent that all the Mexican immigrants who came here today had come legally, we would see an even better pace of assimilation. Look at it that way and realizing that immigrants who come today are more American when they come and they become Americans faster despite having to live in the black market, I think is a testament not just to the entrepreneurial and energetic spirit of immigrants today and how they want to become American, but also uh, a testament to how much American culture has influenced so many people throughout the world and how we are still a beacon for uh, millions of people who want to come here and want to uh, become Americans. And I think that this book really goes into some fantastic detail about that process, about that cultural process by which people become Americans. And to differentiate it from a lot of other books out there in the sociology profession that write about assimilation, it really describes the process very well. It, it sort of creates a model for how this happens. And it, it was really the first time that I had read that third generation. The third generation of Americans, you know, your, great, your grandparents were immigrants, your, your parents were born here, third generation. You look longingly back on that ethnic or religious identifier of where your parents came from or your grandparents came from. And that is a feature as, uh, of success. That is a mark of success of becoming an American because as Americans, we don't have an ethnic or racial identifier. 
the largest ethnic group in the United States by last name is German. Um, that's going to change in the near future because of waves of immigrants from Central and South America. But that's the largest group. We don't have a blood borders culture conception of being American. It's a values conception of being American. It's a civic notion of being American. And that's something that is um, virtually unique throughout the world and unique throughout history. And what this book does is it describes that in some of the best detail that I've ever read uh, anywhere in the literature, in both sociology and economics and academics, and even in popular books made for a popular audience. And for that notion, I think it made me, um, you know, I study immigration policy and sometimes I become skeptical of the way my government does things. I become skeptical of the United States and its immigration policy. But this really filled me with more enthusiasm and more hope for the future of this country and the ability to assimilate immigrants and the ability to be a beacon than uh, virtually any book that I've read in my years of working on this topic. So I highly recommend it to all of you. I couldn't recommend it more. Um, it's a beautiful book. And uh, thank you very much for coming today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. We have time for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone and identify uh, yourself and your affiliation. So we will take the first question up here in front, please. Right there. Wait for the microphone, please. Hi, my name is Stephen Hank, and I have Could no. You speak up a little. My name is Stephen Hank, and I have no affiliation. Uh, I was I was kind of interested in this notion of low unskilled workers versus high skilled workers as as whether we want you know immigrants who are high skilled or low skilled it always seemed to me that human beings are a resource and therefore if lots of low skilled um, low skilled employees is a resource it doesn't mean that that we don't need high skilled but this idea that there's only a set number of jobs for low skilled um, look at all the, the people that came into New York City that were low skilled at the turn of the century. Jobs were created. In other words, I, I think there's a misconception that you look at an economy and you say, well, we only have this amount of need right now for low skilled. But I think the answer is if you bring more resources, that is more low skilled workers, businesses will take advantage of that low skill. We will produce goods that will be, um, that will take advantage of these low skilled workers. Even if those, even if that production doesn't currently exist, it will, it will come to exist because of the incentive. So I'm, what I'm saying to you is, my question is, isn't that another big misconception um, that you guys seem to overlook? That, and that where you always hear so many people saying, we want, okay. oh, we only want high-skilled labor okay. to immigration. Thank okay. you. Uh, thank you very much. I couldn't agree uh, with you more. Um, I, I look at it in different ways. One way to look at it is, is just look at it domestically, because um, much of this discussion would be better understood, I think, by people if they thought of these issues um, in, in the domestic context. Um, since the Second World War, um, the U.S. has added about 100 million people to the workforce, if you count baby boomers in general and women in particular. 
Um, if the arguments made against immigrants were true on, on, the, on an economic uh, level, then those 100 million people would have destroyed the U.S. economy, would have, would have made everybody poorer, would, would have generated so much unemployment that that would be you know, the number one issue in the United States on a permanent basis. And that's not the case. There's never been, I mean, you know, in, in these 60 years, there's never been long-term unemployment of, 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 of any kind. There's been unemployment, of course, in times of recession, but that's, that had different causes. Um, look at Arizona, for instance, which is such a sensitive place for this, for this debate. Just before the bursting of the bubble, I looked at unemployment rates in, in, in Arizona, uh, among the lowest in the country. 4%, sometimes even less than 4%, 3 point something percent. Um, and yet 10% of the workforce uh, was, and I assume continues to be, uh, immigrant. So, so clearly it is not generating unemployment. It is generating growth because Arizona is a wealthy state. Uh, and it is helping make, as I said, the, the pie larger. That includes both low-skilled and high-skilled uh, uh, immigrants. The, the idea of separating low-skilled from high-skilled is one I don't like very much at all. Unfortunately, we're forced to do so because the terms uh, of, the, of the debate are, are, are such and because it's been framed uh, in, in, in that way. So we need to kind of take them apart and explain to people what low-skilled workers do to the economy and what high-skilled workers do to the economy. But ultimately, it's all about production. Um, the stock of capital in the U.S. has been going up by about a rate of 2 or 3% every year for the last uh, few decades. And that's why, uh, of course, the economy has been more uh, productive and we have been uh, able to generate a rise in salaries uh, altogether. And yet, at the same time, we've had a constant inflow of immigrants. So that would not have been possible if immigrants were hurting that productive uh, process. If I could, yeah, if I could add just uh, one small thing to that. I've been doing a series of debates for the last uh, couple, uh, couple times this week, and I have another one on Sunday, and this issue is always brought up. Um, and the, uh, the analogy I like to use is, well, if we have 100 high-skilled people in a room, let's say 100 college graduates, and we bring in 50 more uh, less than a high school uh, graduates into that room, the economy gets bigger, production increases. The rejoinder, the people, the critics always say, oh, but you lower the average education level in the room by doing that. And that really shows, I think, the danger of knowing a little bit of math and knowing not very much economics. Because uh, an average is a terrible way to describe that. I mean, that's an example of the Danny DeVito fallacy. Just because Danny DeVito walks into a room, yes, the average height in that room will decrease, but nobody is actually any shorter. <laughs> and that's something that is, is pervasive. So talking about public policy and the impact of immigration on the economy by using broad averages like this really is probably one of the worst ways to do it and betrays a total lack of understanding of uh, the econo how economics works. Question right there. My name is Stephen Shaw. I thought it was a wonderful and wholly convincing presentation. The one aspect I'm wondering about is the, the effects on the nations that immigrants leave from. Um, are, are, they, although, are those nations any worse off? For example, it was said that when the, the 1848 revolu revolution failed in Germany, a lot of German liberals came here, and therefore Germany became more autocratic. Or today, as much as we complain in this building about economic regulation, a lot of immigrants see the United States as a more fertile place for applying entrepreneurial skills. So are countries that immigrants 
leave from worse off, say, in terms of entrepreneurial skills? Uh, that's a, a great question. Um, well, what um, if, if we look at, uh, forget about nation states and borders for a moment, um, what are we talking about? We're talking about um, how people are able to create the most value. In other words, they, they choose their location according to where they can create the most value, and then we all exchange the fruits of our labor um, according to uh, what we need and what we can offer. Um, if, if you look at it that way, then you will realize that people moving in or out is not going to have a, a, a long-term effect uh, of, an, of a negative kind in, in, in any way. Europe um, was uh, exporting people, again, until the 1980s, as I, as I said, and those countries were becoming more and more prosperous. They're in a mess today for completely different uh, uh, reasons. We've had the same in Latin America. People migrated uh, to Venezuela from countries such as Peru, Peru to, for, on a consistent basis for half a century. Peru today is a much wealthier country than uh, uh, Venezuela. Uh, look at it this way as well. Chinese immigration in the United States has played a key role in the economic, growing economic prosperity or gradual economic prosperity of China. Uh, they have not only, of course, uh, be, been able to export stuff to them and, and import stuff to them, they have also invested in, in, in China. So I think that um, borders and, and barriers are really artificial in terms of the impact on, on, on the economy. We all uh, uh, benefit from a constant circulation of people. Uh, the same has happened in, in Europe. Uh, some of the Eastern European or Central European countries have been exporting people to the Western part of Europe in the last few years because it was it became legal to do so. And yet they have been becoming more and more prosperous. Poland is much more prosperous than it was 15 years ago, and it has exported an incredible amount of people to Western Europe, including Spain and people who are not doing so well any, anymore. I just have some very small things to add to that because he's 100% right. I mean, about the German 1848ers, uh, German liberals left behind in Germany complained about the liberals leaving. Americans who experienced and met them complained about the autocratic Germans who are bringing their socialist notions of collectivism and destroying American individuality in the process. Um, it's funny, these 1848ers formed the core of what became the Republican Party and the anti-slavery wing of that Republican Party. But that just is a little anecdote about that, that feeling about uh, immigrants destroying the core of America no matter where they're from. Um, so the, the issue that you talk about, do, you know, does emigration with an E leave the sending country worse off? I mean, that usually takes the frame of the brain drain. That's what people call it. They say, you know, the best and the brightest or the most energetic leave, and then what's left behind, everybody else suffers. Well, that sort of assumes that a person in a country is the property of everybody else in that country, which is a terrible notion that no, um, no person who has any concept of, like, individual freedom or, liber or you know, liberal in the classical sense uh, interpretation could actually view. Um, and it's absurd. And what we actually see is when the opportunities to emigrate, to leave occur, people increase their education, they go to school more, they acquire more skills in order to do better in the source and the, the country where they want to go to, but a lot of them end up staying. So we see this in like South Africa uh, in nursing schools. A lot of people go there to, to try to immigrate to the US or to the UK, but a lot stay behind in South Africa. We see it in the Philippines and what it was mentioned, the Filipino nursing program. Um, a lot, they have some of the highest percentage of nurses as a percentage of the population of any country in the world because there's the possibility to leave when they have that. And as a result, the rest of a, Filipinos um, uh, who remain behind gain from that. 
So you're absolutely right that this is sort of a weird argument used by mostly restrictionists to say immigration is really bad for people in poor countries when it's really just not true. I guess I would add, I mean, <laughs> Hispanics come here as free traders, and I guess academic multiculturalism turns them into socialists in the United States. So it's actually the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right in front. Nima Blyden, George Washington University. I'm one of those academics you, you speak of. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I love the presentation. Thank you. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with your romantic uh, vision of assimilation and acceptance, though, um, because we all know that some groups are more assimilable than others. So perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about how you're defining assimilation, right? Because, you know, how many times has a third or fourth generation immigrant been asked, where are you from, or right, what language do you speak? So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you're thinking about assimilation, because assimilation is based not only on the desire of an individual to assimilate, but also on the desire of the larger society to allow that person to assimilate. Well, about the, the first part is, are they assimilating, um, uh, you know, are uh, immigrants, Hispanics, Asians assimilating uh, today uh, the way they did in, in the past? And the answer is definitely yes. I mean, the, the research is very extensive, and I looked uh, uh, into this in, in a lot of detail. Uh, there's many ways to measure it, whether it's uh, the use of English, whether it's uh, mingling with the native-born population, marriage, um, whether it's uh, entrepreneurship. That's another way to measure this. Um, the idea is that there's a lot of entrepreneurship that's uh, homegrown, but uh, these Hispanics are bringing in um, inimical notions, you know, uh, inimical to entrepreneurship, and that's not true. The rate of uh, self-employment among uh, Hispanics almost equals the rate uh, for native-born Americans, almost 12%. Um, and the number of companies they're founding every year is, is just uh, amazing and astounding. Um, what does happen is this, which is something I think Alex touched upon in his uh, comments on, on the book, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, the, well, the first generation, of course, is, is, is first generation. They're just trying to find their way around. They're trying to fit in. At the same time, they have attachments back home. Uh, incidentally, you should look at, because people ask me all the time, well, Mexicans are so tied to their home country. It didn't used to be the case. Read some of the letters Italians were sending back home in the early 20th century, full of Italian passion, uh, expressing, you know, profound nostalgia for back home and wanting to go back and, and sending money back home as well. Um, so that's only natural. Uh, the second generation moves in the opposite direction. They're so conscious of this, of, of being seen by US society as not really fitting in, as being somehow different, that they escape from the roots. And they reject the roots to an extent. I mean, I wouldn't, that's not fair, uh, you know, uh, for everybody, but certainly there's a, a big percentage of that. And yet by the third generation, they feel so secure that they go back to those roots, but in a different way, in a purely sentimental way. They begin to embrace national holidays and those kinds of things, simply because they know they're so secure and so accepted by US society that there's no risk in that. That's really how Cinco de Mayo was born. That's, that never was a big deal in Mexico. It's a big deal here. And because it's such a big deal here, Mexicans back home started thinking, well, this is uncomfortable because Mexican immigrants are more patriotic than we are. So now we have to assume that this is a national holiday as well. So now in Mexico, they're celebrating it. Uh, but that was the result, not of first generation immigrants, 
uh, certainly not of second generation immigrants. It was third generation immigrants feeling so assimilated and so accepted by US society, then they thought it was about time to start celebrating that. And who celebrates Cinco de Mayo? Not just Mexicans. I mean, wherever I go, it's Americans celebrating uh, Cinco de Mayo, just like they celebrate Irish holidays and Italian holidays. As Alex said, this, is, this, this country is really not based on, on, the nation state here is not based on blood, it's based on credo. So it's really not a nation state, it's, it's a nation of nations. It's a state based on credo. And I think that uh, reality speaks to that. And I think the Cinco de Mayo example is great. I mean, I can't think of a more American holiday than celebrating the defeat of a French army. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly what it, what it is. Um, and, and you know to go into some you know some more, and this is what he writes a, a whole chapter in here about in, about this phenomenon. It's about the immigrants moving toward the mainstream society, and then the mainstream society moves a little bit toward them. So what I learned was that in this book was that everything I like to do on Sunday <laughs> comes from the Germans. I mean, I uh, I like to go bowling, and I like to go to the shooting range. And that is something that Germans did on Sunday that was really un-American in the 1870s, and people were really afraid of because you know, the, the old puritanical American version of Sundays was you sit at home and, you know, you go to church, you sit at home, you read the Bible, and you basically cloister yourself and don't do anything that's fun. And then the Germans were like, no, we're not going to do that. And now what do we do on Sunday? We have picnics and we go out and we have a good time. And that's a ch uh, an example of American society changing and assimilating partly to the immigrants and their culture, but it's, it's pretty clear that the immigrants you know, do most of the changing in their descendants. We'll take a question in the back and then in the front. Right there, please. Hi, I'm Emily Collins from the Atlas Network. And my question for you is, it seems like there are a, there are a couple of institutional things in the government that may need to change in relation to immigration, such as the minimum wage or welfare, because a lot of immigrants come and work under the minimum wage, and then also um, illegal immigrants may take welfare. Or if they became le legal, they might take more welfare, and people argue that that would, be, that would also be a social drain on society. Um, so I was wondering if you would speak on whether or not that's been discussed in the House or, and in the Senate, or um, yeah, your opinions on that. Sure. Um, uh, the um, Congressional Budget Office just came up with a report um, uh, calculating what the impact uh, in fiscal terms would be of legalizing uh, 12 million people for uh, the next decade and, and beyond. And they did two different calculations. Uh, one, you know, uh, along the, I don't want to get too technical. There's something called dynamic scoring. In other words, you calculate what the effects on the economy are going to be, and then you calculate what the fiscal impact of that will be. The other way of doing it is simply calculate the fiscal impact, uh, assuming there's going to be no huge change uh, in the, on, the, on the economy. Whichever way you look at it, uh, the impact is, is beneficial. And what they do is they simply calculate um, what impact is going to be on the deficit, and uh, it's going to be uh, a very positive impact in terms of reducing the, the deficit. But as I said, there are many studies that, um, uh, very respectable studies that uh, indicate the, the contribution is very positive. Uh, just thinking of one at this point, I mentioned the National Research Council. There's another one that was very, I think, uh, significant uh, at the time. Uh, Jeffrey Passel did a, a study of 
what happened between the 1970s and the 1990s, so in that sort of two-decade uh, period. And he came up with a figure that's, uh, I think, very significant. The net contribution was um, uh, $25 billion. Uh, $25 billion. Um, but again, when, when you look at it, always think that uh, the effect of immigration on the economy goes beyond what they themselves produce and consume and what they themselves pay and what they themselves take out of the system because they impact uh, the whole of U.S. society. They make all of society more productive, the entire economy more productive. So ultimately, it's almost impossible to calculate exactly what the impact will be. But we know it'll be, it'll be positive because if the economy becomes more productive and you're producing more goods and services, I mean, by definition, you're going to uh, bring more revenue to the government. Ultimately, if that were not the case, though, uh, well, that's a great argument to get rid of the welfare state. I mean, um, immigrants were not to blame, are not to blame for the fact that uh, government spending has gone up by a factor of 50 in the last century. Until the Second World War, they weren't even entitled to relief programs. And in the middle of the 1990s, we had uh, welfare reform uh, uh, that impacted immigrants as well. So now they're able to uh, uh, use that system only in a very limited, uh, limited way. I think there's uh, very few things more dangerous about the welfare state than that it changes the perception of people being, you know, assets and good for society to liabilities, uh, to viewing people entirely as costs, and to look at this, you know, one government agency and to look at that and to think, well, people who take from there are a net cost, they're terrible. We did some research here at the Cato Institute. We hired out a couple of professors uh, recently at George Washington to do a study about how much welfare poor immigrants use compared to poor native-born Americans, because that's the relevant comparison right there. You want to do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, poor people to poor people in the same level. And what we found was that if poor Americans used Medicaid at the same rate as poor immigrants and took the same amount of benefits, that program would be 42% smaller. It would be a gargantuan savings. But for, uh, but for some reason, people, when they look at an immigrant taking a dollar of welfare, all of a sudden the damage is magnified beyond all comprehension compared to a, an, an American citizen taking the same amount. Now, you know, I, I favor um, getting rid of the welfare state for everybody. Um, but if we can't do that, let's build a wall around it at least and try to improve that perception of, uh, and try to remove the perception that immigrants are takers when in fact they make far, far more and contribute far more to society than the paltry amount that they take in welfare. Okay, we have a question in the front row. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Arend Kowner. I'm an economist. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation, especially the refutation of all the myths. Uh, I couldn't agree more. My question is, uh, in spite of the overwhelming uh, economic and cultural evidence on the benefits of immigration over a long period in everywhere across the world, how is it that the anti-immigration arguments find such a fertile soil, at least in certain groups in this country? And in relation to that, if you look at the experience of other countries, which I'm sure you have done uh, in the book, but can we draw any lessons from the way those other countries, say Europe or Canada, uh, the way they have dealt with the myths in order to have an immigration policy which makes economic and cultural sense? Uh, separate question is, uh, there's one myth where I couldn't really uh, agree with you. You said that the, um, there's a myth that the immigrants have uh, a lot of children. I think that's a myth that... It, can not be refuted because they do have a lot more children, but it's precisely one of the benefits, the economic benefits that immigrants bring a younger population and for a generation or so, they'll have more children and 
bring in a further uh, influx of younger people in, uh, into the into the nation, into in the, eco the economy, and therefore that's a, that's a plus. Thank you. Uh, great points you make. Um, the first answer, I think it has to do with fear. Uh, any community that is faced with an influx of newcomers um, will be afraid. And it will rationalize that fear with arguments of the kind we, we, we tend to hear. Because you prove to them that those arguments are not true. You prove to them that they're myth. You, you throw at them all these uh, you know, statistics and, and, and historical experience. And yet that fear remains. And, and I think it has to do with fear. That's how stereotypes were born. Um, you know, at the time of, the, of Irish immigration, the idea was that all Irishmen were drunkards. I mean, there may have been one or two who liked a beer or tent, but that, I mean, clearly that was a stereotype. Uh, all Italians were mobsters. There may have been one or two who was on the wrong side of the law, but not all Italians were mobsters. Uh, not all Catholics were repressive. At the, now we embrace Catholics, of course, because they're all about uh, religion and family values. But uh, a few centuries ago, a couple of centuries ago, Catholics were uh, hated by people who were already here because they saw them as uh, European repressors. Um, so today we have, again, this stereotype that Hispanics are different, that Hispanics are worse. Now we begin to embrace Indians, of course, because of their contribution to Silicon Valley. But a couple of decades ago, uh, Indians were, I mean, also the object of stereotypes uh, here. So again, I think it has to do with, uh, with, with fear. About children, it's definitely coming down, uh, even in Europe. I mean, there's no question. It's slightly higher than the native rate. In Europe, it's, it's about two children. And here, as I said, it's 60% higher than the native uh, rate. But the, the tendency is uh, coming down. Uh, and that's also the case in, in Latin America. And, and incidentally, one more point about the previous question that is connected to this. Uh, the average age for immigrants is 27. The average age for Americans, I guess, is, is 42. So uh, again, that's a, a, if the welfare state is what we really care about, that clearly that's a, a plus because that's more years of, of contribution to the, uh, to the system. And in terms of taking uh, money out of the system, of the transfer system, uh, only 1.2% of immigrants are over 65 against 12% for the US population. So again, if those arguments were real, then, then you know, those fears should be dispelled by the evidence. But I think there's fear at the heart of this, and it's very, very difficult to dispel. Uh, about why the rest of civilization and society doesn't take up these uh, well-known arguments and facts uh, in economics. I mean, I wish that immigration was the only instance of that. Um, I, mean, we, I mean, there are so many economic notions that have been known for quite a long time that are not taken up in the mainstream society. I mean, intellectually, I think we won the debate about free trade. But when you ask the common person, you know, do you think that we should be able to import goods and services from China without any kind of government barriers? They'll be like, no, that takes American jobs. Of course there should be barriers. So I, I, I think that this notion goes beyond this to this conception that there is a fixed pie. I think people have this, this ingrained notion that there is a fixed pie of wealth, a fixed pie of jobs, a fixed pie of you know, X, Y, and Z. And so having more people uh, come into the country will decrease the amount that is available to us. I think it's a, it's a wrong-headed notion. It's something that we've been fighting against in every sphere of public policy for a long period of time when it has to do with economics. And um, we have a lot of work to do with uh, immigration especially, but in numerous other issues. We have time for one more question, if there is one, and we'll take it right there, please. Hi, my name is uh, Mike Maxey, and I'm uh, uh, a retired Foreign Service officer with the Agency for International Development. And I was uh, previously the uh, 
officer in charge of Central America desk. And so we looked at a lot of issues in Central America. And um, I, basically I looked in your book and I was going through the, the, the idea that most of the poor people uh, do migration within their countries or within a region, maybe in Central America. Uh, but then I read in your prologue that you know 9,800 kidnappings in a certain period of time was mostly poor Central Americans and Mexicans you know, as an effect, you know, effect of the drug war that's going on. Uh, it, it, this is a key issue because uh, we've got a, a disease in Central America right now for coffee plants called coffee rust. And it's going to impact about 3 million uh, workers in Central America that work in that sector. And they're talking about maybe 40 to 50 percent loss of the sector and then loss of their employment. Uh, if they can move north, I think they may. Uh, I'm not sure this is on anybody's radar screen, but if you're right that they won't move north, that they'll basically uh, change their area of location within Central America, that'll also have impacts. And I'd just like to get your perspective on what could happen. And this has happened in the past with Hurricane Mitch, and that's how we got different types of uh, out-migration from Central America before. But this one's pending, and it's coming up. Well, it, I mean, it's, it's not inconceivable that a small percentage of them will try to move north and, and eventually come to the United States. But uh, historical experience indicates that they will mostly migrate within the, uh, within the area. Uh, that's what's happened normally in, in uh, Central America. It's happened even in Mexico. Migration inside Mexico is something that people don't really talk about all that, uh, all, all that much. Um, I know the experience of my, my uh, home country, Peru, uh, very well. It's a, a country that in the last uh, 50 years has seen, uh, I mean, colossal amounts of, of uh, migration internally. Um, so much so that everything has been impacted, the economy, the institutions. The story, incidentally, is, is no different in the United States. Uh, domestic immigration is four times larger than uh, international immigration for the United States. So um, it, it's just a pattern that seems to be repeating itself uh, everywhere. So I don't know exactly what will happen with those people, but if, if we can go by historical uh, precedent, uh, it, it's very likely that that will not have a huge impact in terms of inter, uh, international uh, migration. It, of course, will probably have an impact uh, uh, domestically in terms of, 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 uh, of the economy. Uh, that will take us into the whole issue of the Central American economy, institutions, the drug war, and, and, and all of that. But, that, but it's a different, different issue. Yeah. The Pew Hispanic Center did some research, and they looked at, uh, from 2000 to 2010, the increase in origin of different countries of, of migrants. Uh, Central America was 16.5 percent. It was the, it was off the charts compared to any other origin. The, the next was 9 percent for South Americans. Mexican country of origin and people not born here, but coming from Mexico was like 2 percent increase. Something's happening. Even you you map it out here. It's incredibly difficult to come, but people are still coming. And from Central America, they're really coming. Uh, so. Yeah, but that, I mean, it's because Central America is not doing that well and Mexico has been doing a lot better in the last few years, which is why I have predicted um, that a few years from now, the debate in the U.S. will be where the hell are we going to get immigrants from because the Mexicans don't want to come anymore. 
Mexico is growing at 4% a year. The new president wants to engage in, in reform, uh, free market reform. If he does, I think that will go up to 6%, and that'll be enough to absorb all of the uh, new workforce, uh, the young people. Uh, so Mexicans will be coming less and less. Probably they will be, will be replaced by Central Americans for a while until Central America takes up the reforms they need to do, and perhaps until we get rid of a drug war, which is devastating the, the, the whole area, by the way. Um, in which case, we will need to go and find them, I don't know, in Iceland, maybe. I don't know where. It's, it's, it's going to be an issue. It'll be, believe me, it'll be an issue. Is this being recorded somewhere? 20 years from now, the problem will be Mexicans don't want to come to the U.S. anymore. <laughs> And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Since 2008 of lawful migrants coming to the United lawful immigrants coming to the United States, Asians have outnumbered Hispanics. And now we use the word Hispanic broadly. I'm, I, I'm, in a super Ameri I'm an American, so I use it, you know, Central and South Americans. Uh, Asians have outnumbered them in terms of the lawful migration system. And it, the gulf is getting wider every and every year. I mean, Asia is the new source going forward of immigrants to the United States. It's going to be the new historical dynamic. So I, I predict that my kids, when they're adults, they will look back and say, Alex, why were so many people upset about Hispanic immigrants or Mexican immigrants? It's just absurd to me. And then they'll be like, but these, um, you know, these Indians or, you know, these Southeast Asians, they're different. You know, they're taking our jobs this time. That's what I'm going to hear, I think, in the future, not only from my own kids if I've done a poor job educating them, but uh, also from uh, other people in society. Unlikely. Unlikely. People think do a bad job. Well, it's been a fascinating and I think encouraging discussion, and I hope our friends up on Capitol Hill pay attention to the points made today, and especially read Alvaro Vargas Llosa's book, which is on sale here at a, at a discount for all of you interested. Thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking our great speakers today. Thank you very much. Thank you.